You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church, and I'm excited to dive into a brand new teaching series called Prayer Life. We're going to be looking at different prayers in Scripture and uh, learning what they have to teach us about our prayer life and how we approach God in prayer. And I want to just kind of begin the series by setting your expectations properly, because unmet expectations is a recipe for frustration, correct? This is not your introductory prayer series. This is not a 101 kind of where to begin in prayer. We've done that series before. In fact, you can find it. It's called Teach Us to Pray. You can look it up, find it on our podcast, find it on YouTube playlist uh, under Hill City Church. Uh, And I think it is very important for you. If you've maybe never really had a prayer life, you've never really talked to God, you've never prayed much, uh, I want to recommend a resource to you. We have this resource in our uh, resource area. We only have a couple of them, but you can find it online as well. It's called How to Pray. A Simple Guide for Normal People. This is really helpful. It's by a man named Pete Gregg. I know many of our life groups are going through a series by Pete Gregg right now as well. And this is my favorite kind of introductory book when it comes to prayer. That being said, we're going to enter just some heavy stuff with prayer over the next five weeks. Are you ready for that? And I think perhaps the heaviest teaching text for the series is today, the one that we're going to start off with. And so that's why I want to just kind of start and give you some resources uh, to, to, you know, for some of those introductory matters. But today, it's really going to be heavy. It's going to be challenging. And I just want to set your expectations accordingly. On October 7th, Hamas, the Islamic resistance movement, attacked Israel by launching 2,200 rockets, gunning down civilians, and taking at least 250 hostages. Israel has responded over the last two weeks with counterattacks on the Gaza Strip, which is where Hamas is located. Uh, Over 300,000 Palestinians are displaced. Uh, Water and electricity has been cut off in that area. Thousands of people are dead on both sides, with the death toll rising day after day. I know this is not necessarily news to any of you in the room. It's been all over social media, all over mainstream media. But there are many people asking questions right now. There's political questions. What is just war? What is proper retaliation versus escalation? And uh, there are theological questions that many people are wrestling with. I know because people have asked me some of these questions. Is this the end times? Is Israel still God's chosen nation? And what are we to think about this? And how should we process this in a Christian perspective? Uh, the, the initial attack happened on October 7th. Significantly on October 8th, I was preaching on how teachers will be judged more strictly for what they say. And it should be no surprise for you, if you know me, that I am very cautious to weigh in, to post publicly or speak publicly about these kind of matters. And yet today, I felt like this is really the, the right place to begin with the questions that people are asking about the pain and suffering caused by warfare and caused in the world. So I want to give you two things just to start off. First of all, a resource. 
Uh, it's a resource. It's a Christian news source called The Pour Over. You can find them on social media. You can listen to. They do you know, reporting, and you can also go to thepourover.org. Uh, I know for some, for some of you, uh, maybe one of the frustrations that you might have from time to time is mainstream media. It seems like adds fuel to the fire and almost kind of creates some of that polarization. And uh, this is a politically neutral, kingdom-minded news source. It's not infallible, so if they post something that you disagree with, don't, don't like email me about something they post, okay? But I found it helpful myself. And uh, it's, you know, trying to essentially talk about the biggest events happening in the world with the facts, with, at the very end, a little bit of a Christian perspective, a word of hope or a scripture to help center our minds on Christ. That's the resource. The second thing is a pastoral perspective on these situations. One of, one of the things that we must ask ourselves as followers of Jesus, we talked about this last week, is what would Jesus do if he were in my shoes, if he were me? And specifically when it comes to events going on in the world, how would Jesus process these if he were on earth today? And for these kinds of situations, there are many moments where we can't just open to a passage and see because you don't have a, a, a fair, uh, comparable situation. But honestly, for the events happening in Israel today, I think there is a fairly clear um, example in Scripture where Christ himself prophetically sees the destruction of Jerusalem, which would take place in A.D. 70. And so he wasn't witnessing those events, but prophetically, in a way, he was. He knew the impending doom and destruction which would take place on uh, Jerusalem. And this is what Christ's response was in Luke 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, that is Jerusalem, he wept over it. He wept over it. This is one of the three times we see tears from the eyes of Christ Jesus himself. And you can go on, you can read it, you can reflect and study and pray over that passage later, but he goes on to speak about the atrocities which would take place and the death and destruction and how terrible it is. So he's, we, he's, his heart is broken when he prophetically witnesses this kind of pain and suffering in the world. And I think that should be the Christian response when we see these kind of things happening in the world. I don't think we need another hot take or another stance. I think we need tears and prayers. And that should be encouraging to us that even when you don't know what to say, you can weep and you can pray. And today, I want to teach you how to pray a specific kind of prayer called the prayer of tears. It's a very simple prayer. It's a way of praying where you invite God into your deepest emotional distress. You enter into your difficult emotions, pain, doubt, frustration, fear, sorrow, and you bring those things before God. It's praying while weeping. Let me just ask you this question. When was the last time that you cried? Like, really cried. When was the last time that, that you wept? I know there's really two kinds of people. One kind of person might say, well, I'm a crier or I'm a feeler. And maybe you've always been like that and you wear your heart on your sleeve and almost anything can bring you to tears. Maybe for you, when was the last time you didn't cry? That's the question. 
and it's a song on the radio or a heartfelt commercial or even you're scrolling on social media and you see a picture of a teacup pig <laughs> and you're like how did they get them that small you know and it's just like anything will provoke you to tears and I want to tell you if you're that kind of person and God made you that way that's amazing Today, I hope, the goal of today is not just for us to be sad or for us to, to, to weep, but to actually, I want to teach you how to direct those tears towards heaven, okay? Now, there's another kind of person who maybe you would say, well, I'm just not an emotional person. And I can relate with you. In fact, I've taken all these different, you know, personality tests and profiles, and every single one tells me the same exact thing. I'm a thinker, not a feeler. And we can kind of get that ingrained. Well, I'm just not an emotional person. I'm just, you know, I, I just don't have feelings. And I just want to tell you this. To be human is to be emotional. It's one of the things that separates us from the animals. It's one of the things that it means to be made in the image of God. And I think for those, and, and I'm saying this also to myself, if you've kind of used that, I'm just not an emotional person, I just don't really, you know, have those feelings, I think sometimes we've sold ourselves that perspective on who we are, and that is the thing that is actually preventing us from entering into those difficult emotions. For many people who say, well, I'm just not an emotional person, that's just not me, not, not for everyone, but for many people, there's actually pain there. And it's been a defense mechanism for years in your life. And so I want to invite you to tear down those walls, to enter into even those deep emotions, and invite God into that place. My goal today is not to make you cry. It's not my goal. My goal is to teach you how to pray the prayer of tears. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you seven reasons why we should pray this way, okay? Seven reasons to pray the prayer of tears. Reason number one, we already really looked at it, but reason number one is that Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the English Bible in John chapter 11. Jesus wept. And Jesus wept in his times of prayer. I can imagine that perhaps there were other times of prayer not recorded in the scripture, that Jesus was going before his father in the early hours of the morning, likely in tears in those times. And uh, we have to kind of destroy that cultural attitude towards sorrow and towards crying. We don't really, if we're honest, we don't really know how to do sorrow and grief very well in the American culture. Uh, but there's kind of this embarrassment or shame or, you know, real men don't cry, right? There's kind of this, this mindset around that. And I just want to step back for a moment and just say, was Jesus a real man? Was Jesus strong? Well, he wept. And so we need to stop kind of buying into this cultural mindset and be afraid, being afraid of those difficult emotions because in a very real sense, to cry is to be like Christ, and this is one of the areas that we must be discipled, being discipled into entering into grief, pain, and sorrow. And one of the most beautiful things that God does when he sanctifies us is he begins to break our hearts for the things that break his heart. And if we're not allowing our hearts to be broken, then we're actually preventing the Holy Spirit from sanctifying us and shaping us to care about the things that God cares about. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1. 
beautiful story in Scripture, beautiful narrative that we're looking at today. This takes place near the end of uh, the time period in Israel's history known as the period of the Judges. This was a period where there was a leadership vacuum. There wasn't a kingdom yet, uh, and there was lots of sin and lack of direction and vision in the land. The people are in the promised land, but things are not going well. And there's, uh, our story centers around a man and his family who go to Shiloh, which is the central place of worship. This is before the Ark of the Covenant was moved to Jerusalem and the temple was built. But this is where the tabernacle rested when the Israelites entered into the Promised Land. So this is the place of central worship for the entire nation. And a man and his family go to Shiloh for their annual feast where they were going to offer their sacrifices to the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 4. On the day when Elkanah, that's the husband, sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, which is his second wife, we'll talk about that in just a moment, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, polygamy is not God's design for marriage. I just want to say that very clearly. It's not how God created marriage in Genesis, and in the New Testament, we obviously see Jesus affirm God's design for one man, one woman, a lifetime of marriage. And yet, we just have to recognize in the Old Testament, we see this as a cultural reality where it was very normal. It's never endorsed or condoned by Scripture, and often the problems that arise from having multiple spouses are evident in the story itself, proving the point that this is not God's design. Does that make sense? So very likely, if we were to think about this situation, here's what I would say is very likely what happened. A man named Elkanah marries his true love, Hannah. I would guess that she was likely his first wife. This is somewhat of a Jacob and Rachel situation where she was the one that he loves. And yet, she's unable to have children. So the culturally logical thing for him to do in that day and age was to take another wife to secure offspring. And that's where this other wife comes in to play. And to Hannah's broken heart, this second wife begins to have not just a child, but multiple children year after year after year. Can you imagine just the pain and the sorrow that Hannah feels? First of all, there's the personal pain of infertility. And maybe there's some people in this room who, who know that pain and have experienced that pain. Then you have the public shame, which in that day and age, it was essentially agreed upon that if there was something physically wrong with you, whether it was infertility or whether you were born, uh, born with a, a disability or anything like that, that essentially God had cursed you. And it was something that you did wrong or your parents did wrong and it was essentially publicly agreed. That was the perception. That it's, it's your fault. So there's public shame. But as if that's not enough, imagine the family pain and the dynamic that this second wife is now using it to, to leverage her position and rubbing it in and year after year after year. And this is not just like, you know, she, Hannah's having a bad week or a bad month. She's stuck in this never-ending cycle and situation of pain and suffering. And every year that goes by, there's doubts 
in her, in her faith in God because she's praying for this time and time again. And so they're going to Shiloh. It's like her one shot to pray this prayer near the holy place so that God might hear her prayer and answer her prayer. And so she has this deep sorrow and pain. And whether you can relate to any of the things that Hannah relates to or not, I know everybody's got something. True? Everybody in this room, everybody has something that is the thing that grieves you the most, that hurts the most, something that was taken away from you, a person, uh, a loved one who's lost, a relationship that's been broken and can't seem to be reconciled, financial strain. I think about just just the, the, the pain and the heartache that we experience in this room, and that influences our perspective of God. And this is why this is so significant, the issue of pain and suffering, not just in general in the world, but personally experienced in your life is one of the main roadblocks that people have to believing that God is good and that he loves them. And so this is something that all of us have to deal with at some point in our life. And you see the answer to the question, why, answered by both Elkanah and Penina. And they say the same thing, essentially, the Lord had closed her womb. And it influences the way that each of her husband and the second wife treat her. First of all, her husband shows pity to her. And he's trying to be more kind to her because he feels bad that the Lord had closed her room. And then the second wife is mean towards her because why? The Lord had closed her womb. And she actually likely feels justified by it as well. Well, God closed your room. I didn't close your room. So now I can mistreat you. And we just have to ask the question, did the Lord close her womb? I mean, that's what her husband believes. That's what the second wife believes. But did God close her womb? We have to be really careful about reading too much. Like, the Bible says it. Well, the Bible says it, but it's recording both the husband and the second wife's perception of the situation. The answer to the question, why? The reality is, that's the number one question in my experience that most people ask when they're going through times of suffering. Why God? Why? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? And we must be really careful to arriving at too concrete of an answer to the question why. Because I'll just tell you this. Expect to be disappointed in seeking and finding that answer. Very often, God does not answer the question why we are going through times of suffering. If you want to read uh, a master class, on the problem of pain, read the book of Job in the Old Testament. It's really long and it's really depressing. (laughs) Significantly in Job, the devil inflicts the pain on Job and God allows it. You see the difference? There's a difference between inflicting pain and suffering and allowing it. And if we're not careful, we can have this picture of God as the bad guy in heaven who takes joy messing with us, takes joy in causing us pain. And I'm not saying that God never allows us to go through suffering, or even God, I'm not saying that God never judges or causes, you know, things to happen at all. But I'm just saying in Job, the master class on the problem of pain and suffering in the world, God is not presented as this evil puppet, puppet master in heaven. In fact, we know theologically that God takes no joy even in the judgment of the unrighteous and the wicked. He takes no delight 
in, in judgment and wrath. And so we must be really careful with trying to get too solid of an answer to the question why, because the reality is we may not get that answer until we stand before our Father in heaven. But this brings us to really the second reason why we should pray this prayer of tears. Is Elkanah is trying to answer the question why. Panina, she's trying to answer the question why. But here's what Hannah's doing. She's weeping. And she's not eating. Reason number two to pray this prayer is that tears soften the heart. Tears soften your heart. Getting too caught up in answering the question why often, I, I, I believe, hardens our hearts towards God. We begin to blame God. We begin to put the pieces to the, together to the puzzle. And the reality is that tears have this tendency to soften our hearts towards God. C.S. Lewis is famous for writing that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pains. And if we let him, God will actually speak to us powerfully in those times. Richard Foster, in his book on prayer, has a chapter uh, on the prayer of tears, and he says this, I do know that unless the emotive center of our lives is touched, it is as if a fuse remains unlit. Tears are a sign, not an infallible sign to be sure, but a sign nevertheless that God has touched this center. And so if we let God, he will use pain, suffering, sorrow to actually soften our hearts and speak to us in powerful ways. Something else that Hannah does here in 1 Samuel is she weeps, and what else does it say she does? She weeps, and she doesn't, she's not eating. And what do you call not eating? It's fasting. Now, we don't know if she's fasting for spiritual reasons necessarily, because it's very possible that she's just so overcome with grief and sorrow that she has no appetite. But, but it's also fasting, you know, in that moment. In fact, I've preached on fasting before, and we know that fasting is a way of grieving with your body. It's one of the most appropriate ways that we can show grief. Again, we don't do this very well in America. What do we do? Here's a pint of Ben and Jerry's, right? It's kind of like we try to eat our, our pain away or, you know, watch Netflix or, you know, kind of distract our pain away. But Hannah, she enters in. This is what it looks like, you know, biblically to enter into deep times of sorrow. And I just want to encourage you, uh, maybe equip you with this, if you've never found yourself going to those places, the depths of your soul with God, try fasting. Try fasting. Uh, it's been revolutionary for me. Again, not as an emotional person. Uh, I found that uh, I fast every year during the season of Lent, as well as any time that there's big decisions and discernment need, that needs to be made. And I've found that in my regular prayer life, I often have trouble getting to the point of tears. But when I'm fasting, that God uses that to break my heart. It's been, it's been a whole new level. And so every year, you know, leading up to Easter, I'm, uh, once a week I'm fasting and I make sure I pray during those times and I'm just weeping for the lost. I'm, you know, I'm just, God is using that. I want to share one, one quick story with you. Uh, this is a story about when we were discerning, uh, Hill City Church was discerning about merging with Capital City Christian Church. So the church that was meeting in this location, and we were meeting in a location just a mile and a half up the road, and there's all these details about the merger, and what the name would be, and about finances, and about, you know, who's going to be on the elder board. There's all these kind of things, right? And so we were in this discernment period. And so one day, I was uh, fasting, 
And I went down to a creek and I was praying. And I remember praying through Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for the living God. And there was this moment where I, you know, I was going to pray through the whole psalm and I didn't even get past verse 1. Because I was just, that word living, the living God. And I thought about the church that was in this location, and they hadn't had a pastor for months. And I just thought about all the different churches that end up uh, closing down. And I thought about all the different pastors that burn out. And all just, and my heart broke. And I just remember praying, the living God deserves a living church. And for the first time, all the other negotiations and the details of the merger were stripped away. Now, it's not about the budget and the renovation, all this sort of stuff. And my, God began to shape my heart and break my heart for the people of the church, not just the building of the church or the organization of the church. And I'm weeping and I'm praying. And then a deer literally walks up behind me and goes down to the creek and takes some water. I'm like, that might be somewhat of a sign right there. <laughs> And it was powerful. It was a very, very powerful time of prayer. And I'm just going to, I don't know if I would have, I don't know if God would have gotten me to that place if I wasn't fasting during that time. So let this, I just want to equip you with that, with that tool. If you've never uh, prayed like that, then I want to encourage you to try fasting. Continuing, uh, Samuel, in Samuel chapter 1, they go to Shiloh and they're offering uh, their sacrifices to the Lord. And this is what it says Hannah does in verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Once again, we have to be really careful here because it sounds like Hannah's doing something in prayer that really we shouldn't be doing, which is called bargaining. Right? If you give me this, then I'll give you this. And it kind of sounds like she's trying to manipulate God, which we have to be really careful about that, thinking that we can just assert our will on God and make him do what we want him to do. But I actually want to give Hannah the benefit of the doubt here. I think she's doing something very profound and beautiful. See, for every Israelite, the first child was meant to be dedicated to the Lord as it was. You can read about it in Exodus 22, verse 29. And typically what would take place is this would be the child that opened the womb, the first fruits, the first child goes to God. And so you, you dedicate that child to the Lord, and then typically what you do is you bring an offering to the place of worship, and that's how you redeem the child and you get the child back. Does that make sense? So the offering is, is really what you, you're giving to God, but it's a special offering that you only do for the firstborn. What Hannah is saying, she's saying, I'm not buying him back. I'm going to dedicate this child to you, and he's going to be for you all the days of his life. And she, she makes a Nazarite vow, which very rarely is made on behalf of someone else. It's typically a vow that someone makes for themselves. And she's like, I'm going to go ahead and vow that he's going to serve you all the days of his life. And I believe that Hannah is so confident in God's ability to answer her prayer. She's already making plans for when he does. That's a sign of faith right there. So you could read it and being like, oh, she's just trying to manipulate it. I think she's actually doing something really beautiful. And this is really the third reason why we can pray this prayer of tears, is that God is our only hope. God is our only hope. 
it makes me think of this idea of where do you run in times of trouble? Where do you run when you're desperate? The Psalms frequently call God our refuge, our fortress, our stronghold. That's all meant to teach us that God is the one that we must run to and nowhere else. Maybe you've had this experience if you've, uh, if you've been around little kids where they fall down off their bike or they scrape their knee at a playground and they get up and their tears are starting to well in their eyes and they take those big, uh, deep breaths and their lungs are... <gasps> and what's about to happen? They're about to scream. They're, if you're a parent, you're like, oh no, you know. Time slows down. And uh, they're about to scream. But what are they doing? They're scanning before they begin weeping. Who are they looking for? They're looking for mom or dad because they're looking for someone to run to. And I think this is, this is what Hannah is doing. She's recognizing that f- really what faith tells us is there's nowhere else to run other than God. And so she's, she's weeping bitterly, but she's directing those tears towards God. And really, how, uh, how it describes Hannah in 1 Samuel is very similar. It's very reminiscent of how the nation of Israel is described in Exodus chapter 2, when they're in slavery in Egypt. Look at what it says. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Do you see those four verbs? I want you to hear this when you're in distress, when you're in sorrow, if you allow yourself to not just be sad or mad or frustrated, but you allow yourself to to put those cries where they belong. To rise up to heaven through prayer that God hears you, God remembers you, God sees you, and God knows you. Isn't that beautiful? God is our only hope. And like a child on the playground, when you're in that moment, when life scrapes your knee, would you scan looking for God, for the right person to run to? Continuing in verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, Eli's the high priest, observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. I mean, just think about this. This is Hannah's one shot each year, annually. She's probably done this year after year after year. Where, you know, it's kind of like if you want to turn the volume up on your prayers, you go to the tabernacle. You go to the holy place. And you're like, if God's going to hear any of my prayers, if God's going to answer any of my prayers, this is my one shot each year. And she goes, and her heart is so stricken with grief that she cannot even, even get the words out of her mouth. So she's weeping, and she's weeping. And as if it wasn't bad enough, the high priest thinks she's drunk. And so she's, she's messing it all up. She's losing her one shot each year. And this really is the, the fourth reason to pray the prayer of tears, is because sometimes there are no words. Sometimes there's just no words. And I think we do ourselves a disservice trying to make up words, trying to be quick to find words. But number four is there are no words. But we can be assured that even when you can't find the words, God knows what's on your heart. This is beautiful. This is one of the, scholars say this is actually one of the few times in Scripture, perhaps the only time, that we see someone praying silently. 
It's why we know that people are praying and not just sitting quietly in scriptures because people around them heard audibly, oh, that person's praying. I'm hearing their prayer. This is one of the few times in scripture that it's a silent prayer, but it's, it's, it's a prayer of tears. In Matthew 6, Jesus says that your Father in heaven knows what you need before you even ask. And so it's not a matter of finding the magic words or the magic formula. It's a matter of going to God in that place with that petition. In Romans 8, verse 26, Paul writes to the church, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I know scholars debate exactly what he's talking about there, but I I believe what he's talking about is he's talking about this form of prayer, this prayer of tears, that you can be sure that God gets the message, even when you're not so eloquent, even when you don't have the words to say that God still gets the message. I love how Charles Spurgeon talks about this. He says, let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers. And of weeping as a constant dropping of importunate. That word, I had to look it up too. That word means persistent. Importunate intercession, which will wear its way. Think about the erosion of, of, of water on a rock, which will wear its way right surely into the very heart of mercy, despite the stony difficulties which obstruct the way. Isn't that beautiful? That tears are liquid prayers, which are flowing into God's heart of mercy. You can be sure, you can be certain that he gets the message even when all you have is tears. Continuing in verse 15, But Hannah answered, No, Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Hannah says, I haven't been pouring wine. I've been pouring out my spirit towards God. I've been pouring out my soul. And this is really the fifth reason to pray this, this kind of prayer. And I want to quote my favorite, uh, my favorite preacher that I listen to, John Tyson from Church of the City, New York, is pray what you've got. He's got a, a phenomenal sermon on prayer called Pray What You've Got. And it's the idea that oftentimes when we go before God, we, we pray what we think we ought to say or what we think we need to have inside of us. But the reality is we've got to learn to pray what we've got. Pray what's actually in there so that God can transform us, so that God can meet us there. God can handle your feelings, your doubts, your questions, your pain, your suffering, your mess. God can handle all of it. I love what it says in Psalm 56, verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? It's this picture that God has a bottle for the tears of his people. So you can choose. You can bottle it up or you can put your tears in God's bottle. Which one's actually going to help? Which one's actually going to invite God to transform you and to change you and to help you and to heal you? Bottling those things up, suppressing those difficult emotions and pains and doubts, that, I've seen it time and time again, leads away from God. But if you want to grow in intimacy with God, you've got to actually put your tears in His bottle to pray what's actually in there. I want to, you want to hear another story about me? Me weeping in prayer? This is angry teenage Josh, Okay. This is angry teenage Josh. Uh, some people, sometimes they tell me I'm an old soul, that uh, it seems like I'm older than I actually am. 
And uh, part of that's because I went, when I was a like 12, 13 year old, I had a really difficult season in my family. Really difficult season of pain and suffering. Went through a lot for, for a number of years. And I won't get into it right now. I've, I've preached on it a little bit before. But near the end of that season of my life, I had it out with God. We lived in Alaska, and we had, you know, a couple acres of woods. And I was, I, there's, this, there's this pivotal prayer in my faith journey where I'm down in the woods for an hour, and I'm indignant towards God, irreverent towards God, angry. I said things in that prayer I, I wouldn't say today because I have a little bit more fear of the Lord in me today than I had then. And I was like, I, don't, I think I started the prayer, God, if you're even real. And I just kind of, I was, and I was, it was tears. It was angry tears, but it was tears. What was I doing? I was praying what I had. I was going before God with what was not what I thought needed to be, not, you know, tidy up, good Christian Josh. This was angry teenage Josh. And I, I poured out my soul towards God. And I look at that prayer. Not as the moment I came to Christ. I still believe that when I was an eight-year-old, I genuinely put my faith in Jesus. But I had this kind of crisis of faith moment as a 16-year-old. And I had it out, and I prayed this angry prayer. That was a pivotal point for me to new levels of intimacy and closeness in my relationship with God. And for some of you, maybe you, you kind of feel like you've always had this kind of inch deep faith where you haven't really, you haven't, you don't really have that intimacy. I would say, have you actually brought before God what's actually in your soul? The questions, the doubts, the pain, the suffering, the why, oh God, how long, oh Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are quotes from the Psalms, okay? That's like our prayer book. Are we well-versed in praying this form of prayer and inviting God into our true selves? And I can just, I look back on that moment as a pivotal turning point for me in my walk with God. And Hannah prays the prayer of tears. In 1 Samuel 1 verse 17, continuing, it says, Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way. And what did she do? She stopped by Arby's on the way home. (laughs) She went her way and she ate. And her face was no longer sad. This is significant. Has she had a child yet? Has she conceived a child yet? Does she have any guarantee that God will answer her prayer? Eli doesn't even know her request. He's, I, honestly, like, as someone who's a pastor, a church worker, he's probably just like, the Lord answer your request. Let's just get you out of here, you know? <laughs> you kind of causing a distraction. And so she's just like, but there's a, this is very, very significant. Even before your prayer is answered, you can receive comfort from God. This is the sixth reason to pray this prayer. Those who mourn are comforted. I didn't come up with this line. This is a quote from Christ Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's a promise from God. That mourning actually opens the door for comfort. And I think for, again, this is this kind of like American Ben and Jerry's Netflix, distract yourself, keep yourself busy, like not going to those places in, our, in the difficult emotions. And I know why we don't want to go to those places, because they're difficult. They hurt. 
But what we're actually doing is we're prolonging the pain. And we're preventing ourselves, if you don't go to the depths of suffering, we're preventing ourselves from receiving the heights of joy and comfort from God. 65 psalms are psalms of lament. That's nearly half of the book of psalms are psalms of lament. We need to learn the language of pain and suffering and actually enter in to sorrow with God. A couple of my favorite lines from the psalms are Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Some people say, well, I don't know. I don't feel like God's really that close. It's like, are you inviting him into your pain? Because that's where God meets us sometimes the most. He's, it's a promise. He's near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Or one of my favorites, Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. This is the picture of tears as seeds that fall into the ground and the plant that grows bears fruit and that fruit is the fruit of joy. It's a fruit of the spirit. But I believe one of the ways that God grows the fruit of joy in our lives is when we're willing to plant tears into our souls. And I just want to encourage you, if you need comfort, if you need joy, actually allow yourself to go to those places of deep pain and sorrow and know that God is near to you in those places and invite God into your time of prayer in those places. But if you know the story of Hannah, she receives more than comfort, doesn't she? Look at how, look what happens next in 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 20. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, I want to be really careful here. This is recorded in Scripture not because it's a normal thing. This is a miracle that happens. But it's recorded in Scripture because it's, a really, it's an abnormal thing. It's, it's noteworthy. And this is not a guarantee or a magic formula or magic you know, recipe to follow. And that can cause problems as well. Well, the pastor said if I, if I cried about my, when I was praying, then I, God has to do it. You see what I'm saying? I'm not saying that. We have to be really careful with that. And yet, it seems like Hannah is heard because of the nature of her desperation. It's, it seems like that. It seems like this is actually a demonstration of her deep faith and her conviction and her trust in God as her only hope. And so this is not a magic formula by any means, but we believe in a God who does miracles. And this is the seventh reason to pray the prayer of tears is because God can do a miracle. God can do a miracle. And this is why he is the one to go back to time and time again like the persistent widow to keep seeking, to keep asking, to keep knocking. Faith keeps us coming back to God because God can bring life out of death. God can bring about a resurrection. God can bring about... And so this one child, this is so powerful. We've been focusing on Hannah and her prayer and her soul and all this sort of thing. But just zoom out for a moment. This child is Samuel. Samuel of 1st and 2nd Samuel. You might have heard of him. Samuel of the one who broke the prophetic silence. Samuel. Samuel, the new judge of Israel. Samuel, the new high priest. Samuel, the prophet. Samuel, the one who ushered in and anointed the new kingdom of Israel. Samuel, led to national revival. Samuel, God powerfully used Samuel. And Samuel is a child of tears. So 
so this is not just about Hannah and her getting what she wanted because did she really? I mean, she got a child, but she didn't get to keep him. So is this really about her and what she gets? It's actually about God and his plan for redemption and God's power and God's will coming on earth in power. And so this is, re- this is really powerful. I want to share another story about a child of tears. Maybe you've heard of Augustine, early church father. And he has these beautiful writings and, you know, just dense theology. And uh, Augustine, one of the things that many people don't know about him is he lived a rebellious life into his 30s before he really submitted his life to Christ. And his mother, Monica, she was like praying. It was like the prayer of a mother, you know, like she was praying for her son, praying for her son. And he lived this life where, you know, slept around and partied and all this sort of stuff. And he even got involved in this uh, heretical cult. So he's like, he's like, well, I'm not going to be a Christian. I'm going to dive into all this heresy. And like that broke her mom, his mom's heart. And so in, in Confessions, Augustine's uh, literature, he writes about his mother approaching a bishop you know, a, a church person, and saying, my son is in, you know, he's involved in this heresy, he's involved in this cult, can you go rebuke him? And I've received requests like this before. Can you go, can you go like straighten this person out? And on, honestly, I'm like, not really. If someone's unwilling, unrepentant, it's like there's very little, like the, a church person's kind of the last person that they want to talk to. And uh, hate to disappoint you if you were like going to come up to me right after the service. <laughs> It's like, I'll pray for you, you know, like, I'll give you wisdom on how to handle it. But it's like, so this bishop is like, no, I won't. I, there's nothing, kind of like, there's nothing I can do to convince your son to come to Christ. But she won't have it because she's a mom. She cares about her son. And so she starts, no, you have to. And she's indignant. And she's praying and she's praying and she's praying. And it's like, she does this. It's like persistently shedding tears, weeping over her lost son. And then this is the bishop's response. It cannot be that the son of these tears should be lost. It cannot be. Now, this isn't scripture necessarily, right? But that's his response. Listen. He has confidence that it cannot be that the son of these tears should be lost. And I just want to tell you the last time I cried, the last time I really wept, hopefully the most consistent time that I weep is when I weep thinking of my daughters and that God would save my daughters. And I'm not taking it for granted. Well, their pastor's kids, of course, they're going to be saved. Or they grew up in church, of course, they're going to be saved. I weep over my small children that God would save them because I'm raising children of tears. And this is this kind of of pain and suffering that we need to enter into, not just petitions and not just pain over what's going on in the world, but this is a form of prayer called intercessory prayer. And I want to encourage you to get to that point in your prayer life where you begin, this is the compassionate heart of God, where you begin to have your heart break for what breaks God's heart. Do you want to see revival in the years to come? Do you want to see a new generation be raised up who knows the Lord, who, who, who they see even more powerful things done in their day than we've seen in our day? We need to pray tears over that generation. We need a generation of, of children of tears. Would we have tears over the lost? Because that's what Christ had tears over. So what I want to do is I just want to end. Did I tell you it was going to be heavy today? I didn't lie. I want to give you a moment. We've been talking about a lot of different things. And I want to ask you to just bow your head and just give you a little bit of space to process. 
Allow the Holy Spirit to take you to the place where, where He wants you to go. The pain and suffering in the world, pain and suffering in your own life, or intercessory prayer, thinking through lost people who need to be found by Christ. And I just want to read as you enter into that place and just sit in quiet. For some of you, tears may come. For others, it might just be a moment of silence. And I want to read Hannah's prayer that she prays after she has her son Samuel. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversary of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.